Okay, so today I am in London, to be exact, Gardner Leaders Office in Chancery Lane with Harry Stuart Moore. Thanks very much, Harry, for agreeing to talk to us today. Not at all, thanks for having um, me. I think you're the first person with it from the legal profession that we've had on, so it's another first for betting people. Um, and assuming people are as less clued up as, than I am, or as at least <laughs> clued up as I am, um, you're a litigator specialising yeah. in commercial sports gambling disputes. Yeah. Um, what, in layman's terms, is a litigator? So a litigator is a lawyer that specialises in disputes. So you've got lots of different types of lawyers. You might have people who help with your purchase of your house or your commercial contracts, your employment. Um, litigators are the ones who get involved when things have gone wrong, basically. And it can be anything from, you know, uh, someone who might represent you in front of the local magistrates for a driving offence all the way up to you know, Lord Panic in the um, in the Supreme Court fighting over the meaning of the Constitution. So it's it's a very broad spectrum. But um, my areas and backgrounds in commercial disputes, so people in business suing other people in business, generally speaking. Okay, so we said that we're at Gardner Leaders, but it's a fairly new move for you. That's Previously, right. you were um, you formed Stuart Moore Solicitors with your father Christopher. That's right. Yeah. So I, I started off at a firm called Watson Farley and Williams, which is um, an international city firm. I trained there spent uh, five years there as a commercial litigator and that's sort of the glamorous kind of side of, of, of the law um, and uh, you know I was able to travel to places like the British Virgin Islands and Monaco, Istanbul, Bangkok and litigate in all those sort of jurisdictions in various um, in front of their various tribunals um, and then decided to stop doing that really because I wanted to do things with a bit more of a human element um, my father, Christopher, was a defamation uh, lawyer, basically, so media lawyer uh, that also did some work in racing. And we decided to sort of join up in about 2013, I think it was. Um, and from then until quite recently, I was doing a sort of mixture of commercial disputes, um, horse racing work, um, which I basically nicked off my dad. Um, and from that grew a gambling disputes practice as well, which came out of the horse racing stuff. And then we had a very busy year last year. We had a few tr things that went to trial. Um, and uh, at the end of that, I, my plan had been to sort of look at joining up with someone else. Dad was uh, had, retiring, basically. And um, I started talking to Gardner, a few firms, but I talked to Gardner Leader and, and really liked them and um, decided to join up, really, sort of take, take the plunge. And it, it, part of it was because I was getting a lot of uh, things that I couldn't do because as a litigator, you're restricted to doing disputes um, but you know if a client came to me wanting to buy a, a, a question facility or something like that I had to hand it to another firm so I thought it would be good to be the full service firm which Garden Leader is and um, I'm at the Chancery Lane office but there's a big office in Newbury as well which is of course quite helpful for the, um, the horse racing side of things so um, yeah I joined up with them really quite recently about six weeks ago. Okay, now if you don't mind me rewinding a bit, it's, um, people would have heard of your father's case, at least one of them. Yes. Um, the, the most famous made news at 10 at the time, top seas involving Jack and Linda, Linda Ramsden. That's right. I mean, so you've inherited the... <laughs> yeah, I've nicked it. Yeah, I've, I, I, it helps having the same surname. Um, but yes, he, uh, was, he was able to sort of combine media law and racing law as a result of that case. He was instructed by Jack and Linda and Kieran Fallon um, uh, against the Sporting Life, who'd said that they, Jack Ramson had told Kieran to stop Top Seas, um, and they won it. 
Um, and it went on from there, really, and, and Dad sort of became synonymous, I suppose, with Kieran, who kept him very busy over the years doing uh, fake shake articles, dealing with those, and um, he was uh, part of the team of John Kelsey Fry doing the criminal proceedings. But he did an awful lot of work in racing generally. He worked, you know, did work for Frankie Tory and um, lots of jockeys, lots of trainers. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I came along in 2013 and just sort of started doing the same thing and, and, and took over really, I guess. And was your dad a racing man anyway? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's his, it was his first love. He's, uh, he, he was, he's, he's a complete anorak. Uh, he uh, was a very early adopter of speed figures and he's still got um, Ken Hussey's standard times, which he keeps under lock and key and he's still very keen on all that sort of thing. But he, he's got an unbelievably retentive brain for that kind of thing. You need that to be a proper proper racing man um, and he can remember sort of almost every race he's uh, ever seen and um, you know e even recently while I was working with him he used to sort of slightly drive you mad he'd just get tons of telephone calls from people in racing asking for his views on on you know uh, on upcoming races lots of punters um, trainers jockeys um, so he certainly knows his stuff and um, I suppose his and I learned a lot from him um, as a result but um, his probably biggest badge of honour was during the Taliski trial, we used Jim McGrath as the rules expert. And uh, at the end of it, he basically said to, to Dad, you know, crikey, you know your stuff. So uh, I think he's had a, had a grin on his face pretty much ever since and that you, conversation. Have you inherited the interest in racing yourself? You're racing... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you couldn't... I don't think you could do the work I do without following the sport quite closely it's um it's difficult and i think that's one of the problems that racing faces at the moment is is how much of it there is it's difficult to keep up with it but i um i tend to do it via podcasts actually nowadays because it's so, you know it's so hard to actually watch live racing i tend to keep up with what's going on via podcasts and uh, I, I have in my time got heavily into it that was when i was at university i was at newcastle and we uh, spent a lot of time going around um the tracks up there, Newcastle, Hexham, and, and we made our own variations of dad speed figures and did pretty well out of it actually. Um, but it's enormously time consuming, so you can't really be a lawyer and, um, although dad managed it sort of, but um, uh, you, it, 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 it's just too time consuming. So I, I, I definitely follow it, but n not nearly in the same way that a lot of my clients do, basically. Okay, now you, we've talked about your, you know, your, your father's stuff, but you, have been part of the legal team behind some of racing's biggest, most recent cases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been really lucky. Um, they've been really interesting cases, and um, they're not just sort of really big in racing. They're actually quite big in the world of sports law for various, you know, reasons that uh, to do with the the, the the laws that were were dealt with. So the, the two biggest would have been the Jim Best uh, proceedings with the BHA, and then more recently, um, Freddie Tlisky's claim in the High Court uh, against. Graham Gibbons, um, and those were those were two, you know, very big cases. And I've done lots of things in in, in between things that are less um, uh, well known. We always tended to be instructed in the sort of, when you're in BHA work in the bigger investigations that involved allegations of race fixing and and gambling issues, um, which is sort of how I managed to segue into a gambling practice really. Um, but yes, we've been involved in pretty much constantly. I started off, I did, the first thing I did was Fergal Lynch's application to get his license back, uh, which I'm pleased to say was eventually successful. Then pretty much straight away, I think we did the um, 
uh, Skylands and Elusive Kate file mistakes uh, appeal to try and get that chain, uh, trying to get the result reversed for uh, Richard Hannon Jr. and Richard Hughes unsuccessfully. That was my first brush with the rules on interference. I remember the BHA presented this Pythagorean theory um, with charts and things all over it. It was it was quite extraordinary. It was almost to the point where people were getting their protractors out in the uh, trying to work out to the extent that ground had been lost. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that that, that 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 those graphs seems to have bitten the dust. But um, it was uh, slightly different in those days. Now it must be high pressure when you're working on these high-profile cases. Because if you win them, then I imagine that's the best advert you could possibly get for a legal firm. If you lose them, it could be equally as detrimental. So do you feel the pressure? Well, it's never my fault if I lose, but <laughs> uh, it's uh, but but it, 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 it's all down to me if we win. Uh, no, of course, yeah, you know, you want to, uh, you get very as a litigator, you get very personally involved in the outcome, definitely, because you're de you know you see people that they're most stressed, and it's hard not to be uh, uh, very sympathetic to that. Um, so certainly you want to win it just generally, but yeah, of course, um, big wins uh, are, are a better advert than, than losses, yeah. And you were also involved with Toaster? Yes, yes, to uh, Toaster Racecourse, I worked for, for quite a while, um, and worked closely with um, Lord Hesketh and Kevin Ackerman there, and that was, that was a real opener. And there's quite a lot of, I, that was sort of my baptism of fire into, into the Greyhound industry at that time, because you'll remember they built that beautiful Greyhound Stadium there, put so much effort and time and money into it. And you know, there wasn't a thing they didn't do to try and get that up and running at a time when Greyhound Racing really needed um, you know, an injection of enthusiasm and investment. Um, and it, it didn't really work, sadly, but they, not for lack of, you know, try, it should have worked actually, in my view, but I think that there was it wasn't so much there was resistance within the, ind the greyhound racing industry, but there wasn't. There, there was sort of they couldn't quite understand why anyone was bothering. Seemed to be the sort of uh, overarching impression I got. And there wasn't. They just sort of thought, why are you spending all this money uh, on this sport? You know. And I think maybe the bookmakers were slightly too in control of it at that time, anyway. Um, and there was the attitude seemed to be, let's just try and make money out of this today um, because perhaps we're not going to be around you know, for very long. And I think that was the opposite attitude that was needed for a project like Toaster. So that was a great pity, but it was um, a real learning experience. I worked with them for sort of four or five years. Yeah. And uh, did you have any background in Greyhound racing? No, I mean, I used to go to Wimbledon Dogs quite a lot, which is, in those days, was enough to put anyone off going Greyhound racing, really, because it was falling apart. But um, again, that just showed you what what Toaster could have been, and I know Ben was a, a huge uh, supporter of it um, and sponsored the Greyhound Derby. I mean, they got the Greyhound Derby, I think, the first year that they opened, pretty much. Um, and, yeah, that, it should have done a lot better um, than, that, than it did, but, um, you know, there you go. And Lord Hesketh's a very colourful character, one that I've not managed to bag. Oh no, you must—you must get him. He's uh, quite how much, <coughs> quite how much of it you'll be able to publish is another matter. But you must get Alexander on. He's—he uh, uh, he's had a fascinating life, extremely shrewd, um, uh, uh, very funny, um, very good company, and um, uh, you know, doesn't suffer fools lightly. It's fair to say, but uh, no, you must get him on. Okay, Harry, the, um, you're keen on gambling cases. 
yeah. and you've <laughs> represented some high rollers. Now, do, they, do you gravitate to these sort of people or are you their go-to man? Um, it, I think that uh, because of the way that the gambling world works, um, it's been word of mouth, really. Um, so I, I got my first one by, mis by mistake, really, for someone I'd done some BHA work for. They realised I knew a bit about punting, and so they gave me a gambling case. And then the next thing you know, they've told someone, they've told someone. It's quite, you know, it's quite a social media-driven little world, gambling. Um, so I've never really done much in the way of looking for gambling work, but have always, I've pretty much had it constantly since about 2014, I'd say. And I think there's quite a lot of it uh, about, but, you know, gambling, you know, you'll know, uh, Simon, I'm sure a lot of the people you ask to do this uh, uh, say no, um, because, uh, you know, that it's, it, it's in the nature of high rolling punters that they don't particularly want to stick their head about the parapet. Um, so it's word of mouth, really, yeah. And would it be fair to say that most of these cases are because bookmakers are doing their best not to pay when people have won? Certainly a lot of them are that. Um, yes, I mean, there are a lot, yeah. I mean, there can be all sorts of things. It can be disputes between punters. A lot of the people I work for are, have been professional poker players um, and are just very, yeah, have used the skills they learned with basically spotting value, transferring that into sports uh, punting. Um, but it, it, it can be anything, really. It, it, it can quite often be between punters, um, some of the disputes. Um, but yes, a lot of it is is trying to get money out of um, bookmakers who, unsurprisingly, are not keen on, on, on paying out to high rollers. Okay, now this wasn't in my original question, but I do <laughs> want to ask it because from a bookmaking background, I cannot see how anybody can just... Like, so the question is, what is there in the law that says... In the time on a fashion, once somebody's struck a bet, so you've offered the bet to the bookmaker, mm. got through the bookmaker scrutiny, they've accepted the bet. How can they? Poss how could it possibly be justified that then, after it's won, they try and wriggle out of it? They shouldn't even be looking for wiggle room. I wish they? I wish you were a high court judge. Um, I could do with that attitude. Um, uh, it's in their terms and conditions. Uh, they they most of them put it. Not always very clearly drafted terms and conditions. But most bookmakers will put in their terms and conditions that uh, if you're betting with someone else's money, that's what they're getting at, whatever the terms and conditions might actually say, um, then they reserve the right to void the bet after the event. Um, the reasons for that, you and I know, are perfectly obvious. So it's not just they don't want to pay out, it's that um, they want to put off uh, people who, well, sharp money, they want to put off people who can spot value. Um, and because they, they, the model is, the modern bookmaking model is not to worry so much about making the book, not so much to worry about prices, but just to get people through the door or digitally through the door. So offering ridiculous things from, from a professional punter's point of view, they're just they're offering, you know, they're, they're putting up lights for snipers basically, you know, with best odds guaranteed and odds boosters and all that sort of thing. So they put those up to compete get as many people through the door as they can and then do their best to identify and exclude sharp money. But it, I mean, I'm going to keep, I'm going to labour this point because <laughs> isn't there something a bit distasteful, the fact they're trying to wiggle out of paying the bet? Shouldn't they say, oh bugger, that Barney Curley's got us again, we must try harder to spot him, rather than say they're not going to pay? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think in fairness, a lot, you know, a lot of people, a lot of bookmakers pay out big 
uh, big bets. You know, so I, I can't say that that this is this is always the case. But yes, of course, there's something distasteful about it because it's a contract that has been executed. Um, the result of the bet is known, and um, I, I, as you were saying earlier, odds should be offered to the world at large, not you know, not um, evens to someone and you know, two to one to someone else. Um, but that's what they would like to do. Ideally, is is you know they take they take bets from sharp money if they could change the odds for them. Yeah, they. I don't know. I mean, it's all about just paying that back. Well, you've answered my question, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to go into this one again. But I'm just going to say, if a, if it was proven that a student decided to to spin up his grant on a successful Super Yankee, if they found that it was mm. him, they pay him. But if they found it at poor old Barney Curley put him up, they shouldn't pay him. You, but you've answered that question. It's well, just I mean, it, 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 you're, you're right in, in, in many ways. And, and if, if, if it weren't for terms and conditions, which actually govern it, if, if it was just two people who, who met and had that bet, and it turned out that the student was having a bet for Barney Curley, you probably wouldn't be able to wriggle out of it on that basis. But these terms and conditions are drafted, you know, 60 pages long when you print them out, some of them. And they have been drafted over a long period of time by expensive lawyers to give bookmakers... Um, the edge, I suppose, uh, on that on, on that subject, and um, it's a brave uh, punter who would go to the high court to, 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 to test that, in my view, or to any court to test that. Not to say they wouldn't wouldn't win, but it would it would take guts. We, we don't think that really the um, the terms and conditions should just be on one pair. You've struck the bet. You well, there there are rules about that. They're supposed to. Yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, in an ideal hey, world, man. I think that would put me. I think it might put everyone out of business. <laughs> Um, now you, you mentioned to me before we did this that in one case a judge was surprised that a punter was asked for source of fund issues after it had won, yeah. and not before the bet. So it was it was at the point of withdrawal, and you know you, you'll be perfectly aware of this as will most of the people watching is that uh, it has been common uh, in recent years for bookmakers to ask from for source of funds material at the point of withdrawal rather than at the point of deposit. Um, now, of course, in any other industry, that would just be treated as completely extraordinary. I mean, solicitors would never be able to get away with that. You can't, you, you're, supposed to, you're supposed to be, you know, do your, the major part of your checks before you accept a penny because the risk, of course, otherwise, is you've committed a criminal offence in accepting and allowing the transfer of potentially criminal proceeds. Um, bookmakers take a much more relaxed attitude to that. Um, uh, and they, because it's an ongoing obligation, it is, they're right that it's an ongoing obligation to always concern yourself with the source of a punter's uh, or a customer's or a client's funds. Um, but they, they slightly, you know, almost put it on its head and sort of do nothing to begin with sometimes. And then um, I've had instances where someone's perhaps deposited 2,140 and they've gone, well, we're very concerned about the sums in this account and you go well most of the sums in this account are yours that you've transferred across are you really saying that you're worried that this two grand that was deposited three months ago um, and those ones tend to back down quite quickly it has to be said um, but yeah it's uh, it, it's um, slightly problematic that the approach of bookmakers to um, anti-money laundering obligations generally and one of the things that I think is is really strange in the gambling industry is a lot of people won't give their personal details to bookmakers because they're they're just understandably in, in the world we live in not keen on handing over personal data. 
uh, to a pretty laxly regulated, uh, I know they don't think they are, everyone else thinks they are, um, uh, industry. Um, and the real question is this, once a bookmaker has said to you, right, we want to know where your money's come from, what they're saying is we're subjectively concerned that this might be the proceeds of crime. Might be. At that point, they're in a sticky situation because they've got the money and they're sitting on money that they think might be the proceeds of crime. And it, the client then might go, or the customer might then go, well, I'm not giving you this material. And that's the end of it. So the thing that I, and I find that the, the Gambling Commission never having really tackled this question, pretty remarkable. Where is all that money? Where's that money now that's in with bookmakers, which bookmakers have told people, we're concerned this might be the proceeds of crime. Where is it? Because that strikes me as a very major issue within the gambling industry. And they're supposed to, there's a very prescriptive um, set of rules, which I won't go into, in, in what you're supposed to do when you're worried that uh, a transaction might be put you in breach of your regulatory obligations. Um, and the end of that process is either a criminal investigation into the transaction or to the customer, or approval to carry on with the transaction. So it's a very strange industry in that there seems to be this belief that it's all right for a bookmaker to sit on funds that might be the proceeds of crime, as long as they're not repaying it to the punter. I think that's a very unique approach to uh, the anti-money laundering uh, regulations, and I'm very surprised the Gambling Commission hasn't been stronger on that. Okay, when you've got, um, I'm going to say yes or no answer. What was the judge naive in that case to, to find it um, surprising? Uh, naive? No, I, the judge was entirely sensible because her experience was. I imagine she was a solicitor um, uh, by training. Uh, she was deputy district judge, so probably a solicitor, and she'd be subject to really stringent rules on anti-money laundering, like accountants, architects, anyone. Um, so it, it's not naivety. It's just. It, it, it's it, it's a lack of familiarity with with the way that gambling works at the moment. Um, in a complex horse racing case, is it a hindrance or a help when a judge does or does not understand the finer points of horse racing and gambling? Oh, it's a huge help if they understand it, as long as it's a, a, a relatively full understanding. The most dangerous is always someone who, um, you know, a little learning can be a dangerous thing. Um, uh, it's very hard. I mean, it's very hard to find people who, uh, judges particularly, um, who know uh, a great deal about horse racing, gambling. They exist, um, and the civil justice system is under a lot of strain. So certainly, they try to give you judges that know a bit about it. But you know, they do their best. Oh, so, um, so you can request that. Somebody it's not so much that it will be. It will be looked at by by the courts as, as you know they'll try and find an appropriate judge to list it in front of. And do you get? Oh no, I'm still labouring points. Here. I know I am, but do you get? Do you get the impression that bookmakers feel they have the right to be protected in a heads we win, tails you lose type of way? Well, I think what might have happened a bit is that ever since the Gambling Act, sports books have been able to become uh, casinos on the side, so they've been able to set up fixed odds products. And I think that there has been a bit of bleeding of that mentality, which is that we're going to make a profit because it's built into the computer, into the sports book side of it. And I, I think that, that I, you, I do sense that a little bit, which is there is a bit of a right to, to, to make a profit on sports punting. Um, 
And you know, even to the extent that you sometimes see in terms and conditions things that say things like, you know, you agree that you're doing this for fun and don't expect to make a profit. Now, I don't know what contractual value that has, but it gives you a bit of an insight sometimes into, into the approach that bookmakers have. I, I, it slightly goes back to the 2005 Act and the white paper that came before it, because the, it kept likening bookmaking to um, things like bowling and going to the cinema. Um, and it, so there's, there is this sort of feeling that it's actually a leisure activity in which you very slowly lose your, or sometimes very quickly lose your money to people who are providing you with the, the pleasure of losing it. <laughs>
So that was the bet that, that, that if any bet had been placed, um, that was the bet that had been placed. So that was the fundamental point we, we, we lost on. Um, there were other issues to do with the law on common mistake and unilateral mistake, which are uh, extremely complex issues. But what one of the slightly galling elements of it was that um, on the subject of, uh, of unilateral mistake, which was basically the judge decided that James was sort of slightly taking advantage of the bookmaker because he knew that they didn't want to place the uh, 20, that her fight she found, he knew they didn't want to place a 26,000 pound bet. But of course, this is in a context where the trader we know looked at it and went, yeah, we'll take that huge bet off him because he's chasing his losses. So for, for, for James to have sort of been impliedly criticized in that way is a little bit galling. Um, and I think he might have appealed it, but uh, appeals are difficult. It's not a rehearing. You don't get to hear the evidence again. It's really marking the judge's homework. Um, but also it had taken nine or 10 months to get judgment um, at that point. Uh, and I think he just thought, you know, enough's enough. So, so sadly, um, we didn't take that one to appeal. Um, and yeah, I mean, it will come as no surprise that I don't think it was the right, right result, but um, it, it was the result. Well, I mean, when, how much more of a, a pure betting transaction can you have? When somebody asks for a bet, they've, the person on the other end has agreed to take the bet, and then they've taken the money to cover the bet. And paid out. That's a bet, isn't it? And paid out. And, and paid they, out. They, and, then what, and, they, and they didn't tell they, him. They didn't, they didn't tell him they were taking the money out. He had to discover that himself. I mean, it, it turned out that the trader had basically come back after the weekend in a complete state. Having, he wrote a, a, an apology email to his superiors saying, I'm really sorry. I didn't know what I was thinking, but I thought he was you know, chasing. Um, and he got someone else to listen to the call and they relayed the terms to call and he, without telling any of his superiors or anything, he just took the, took the money back out of the account. So, you know, he had a huge vested interest in doing that. Um, I can't imagine that was much of a fun weekend for him. Um, but yeah, it, 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 you know, it's a surprising, surprising result for me. I mean, how damaging is it to the bookmaking industry when people see these cases so nobody can be absolutely certain that they're going to get a fair deal if they have a bet, if whenever it wins, somebody's going to try and wriggle out. Or are these cases exception, real big exceptions to the rule? I think you don't see many of them, do you, in, 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 in the press? You might get one every couple of years. And um, I suppose most people think to themselves, I'm unlikely to be in a position where I have £280,000 in my Paddy Power account. So it's unlikely to ever, they're unlikely to get into this sort of thing over my, you know, whatever, 300 quid. But yeah, it's not a good look. Of course, it's not a good look. Um, uh, but um, you know, in fairness to Paddy Power, they fought it and they um, they won and they were very um, reasonable in the way that they conducted litigation. There were no no complaints about that, and it was a it was a fair fight. And I don't think the judges' uh, findings were perverse, but I just think that they were. Um, uh, you know, I, I think they there was room for them to be um, a lot more favourable to, to James. Um, and as I say, I'm just surprised that, that they weren't, really. OK, thanks for that, Harry. But I, I want to just go back to um, the Freddie Taliki case. And you wanted to discuss the, the interference as opposed to the use of the whip in you know, yeah. reflection and respect to that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the first person to make this point. Kevin Blake has been making it um, a, a lot. Um, but it's, it's, it's a really important point in my view, which is that, you know, we had the other day the BHA say, uh, Julie Harrington saying on Nick Luck's uh, Luck on Sunday that 
the, the, the reason for the new whip, whip, whip rules is not a welfare issue. It's a, a, what she refers to as a perception issue. In other words, it doesn't look good to people outside the sport. Uh, and I don't understand for the life of me why the whip is so far up the pecking order. Um, when you have interference, which and Taliki shows what interference can do, um, it's, you know, we're in, it, it seems to be generally accepted, although there, you know, it doesn't seem to be a complete answer to this, but it seems to be generally accepted that the, the modern foam whip doesn't hurt. Um, and yet the, the airspace this is taken up you know, in the media and regulate, in, in regulation is extraordinary. Um, and yet it's been something like 13 years since someone's been automatically disqualified for interference, which is an enormous welfare issue to horses and jockeys. And I, ju I just don't understand. I think we've gone through the looking glass really on this, that, that we're, we're, we're changing the rules uh, for a welfare issue that doesn't really exist while ignoring a very obvious welfare issue that does exist. Now, I think the BHA are looking at it, but my understanding is that they're only looking at it insofar as they're going to increase penalties to jockeys, which is the knee-jerk reaction of the regulator whenever they do anything, it's just to sort of hammer jockeys further. Um, but in my view, you need to make the, um, uh, the penalties for dangerous riding, which you need to actually apply to dangerous riding, not, not the rules version of dangerous riding, which is almost impossible to, to meet that, that definition. Um, you need to make it a proper deterrent um, and just endlessly increasing the penalties that jockeys will have to face isn't going to do that because, you know, you see them coming back from a big race and with a big grin on their face and just saying, oh, I think I'm off for a little holiday now. That, that's not a deterrent. Um, and yeah, the other sort of mentioned earlier, the other big case in my racing career was the Jim Best proceedings, which um, I don't think anyone uh, expected to explode uh, in the way it did, but J Jim was um, charged with uh, instructing a apprentice jockey to stop two horses. Um, and we went before the um, uh, disciplinary panel of the BHA and he was found in breach of a 34, I think it is, which is bringing, I'm not sure if it is that rule actually, but bringing racing into disrepute. And um, he got an exclusion of four years. Almost immediately it emerged that the chairman uh, of that panel had um, done uh, had been employed by the BHA in his capacity as a solicitor. Um, and we were very worried about that and just said, well, this doesn't look good. It's the, what's called the appearance of bias. No, no one ever suggested that he was biased. It's important to, to make that point. But the law treats the appearance of bias as the same thing as bias, largely, firstly, because you can't get in some, inside someone's head and decide whether they're biased. But secondly, also because, um, you know, it's important that, that justice is seen to be done. Um, somewhat extraordinarily, the BHA said that this was a desperate argument to begin with when we first launched the appeal, and they were very um, firm on that view. Uh, and then we went up in front of the appeal board, um, and we had Anthony Boswood, uh, who was an experienced arbitration barrister and actually knew an awful lot about the rules on bias as a result, because it comes up quite a lot in, in arbitration panels. Um, and he made it clear that it was a, this was a really big deal. Uh, and the BHA 
back down at that point and there was an appeal. Um, we won on two grounds. One was an insufficiency of reasons. The reasons in the written decision didn't support the panel's finding. Um, and two, the appearance of bias of the, uh, of the chairman. So um, we ended up in this very strange situation, which was the BHA then announced the Quinlan Review, which was the review into the disciplinary function. I can't remember exactly what the title was, but it was essentially a review into the disciplinary function of the BHA. And the BHA wanted to have, and we waited all summer, months went by and the rehearing wasn't happening. Um, and then the BHA were very keen to get the hearing in, I think it was almost sort of two weeks before the Quinlan Review came out. And we were saying, well, I mean, that, that's not a good idea because the Quinlan Review might come out and set, you know, give a whole lot of recommendations that haven't been applied to the rerunning of BEST when it was BEST that caused this in the first place. And we ended up at this extraordinary hearing in front of William Norris. Um, I think it was William Norris. And um, it was a hearing that wasn't a hearing. It was a non-binding hearing, which I'd never... Nothing improper about it. Um, but it was basically we turned up on the basis that we were making the submissions that we would make if this was a real hearing. And he would give us his decision that he would have made if it was a real hearing because we didn't want to submit to the BHA's jurisdiction because we wanted to retain the right to go to the, the High Court. Um, and he found in our favour and we had a, we, we, the Quinlan Review then came out um, and the hearing happened again and this time we got much better disclosure from the BHA. There had not been proper disclosure the first time round. And one of the things that was disclosed was an email between the relevant jockey and uh, the BHA about his giving evidence and what effect that might have. We said that was evidence of a deal that would impact on his evidence, on, on, on the weight that could be given to his evidence because he might have an incentive. And the BHA said, absolutely not, absolutely not. Anyway, Jim lost again, but got only six months, second time round, of disqualification rather than exclusion. And the BHA and the panel found that that was a deal between the, um, the jockey and the, uh, uh, and the BHA to give, essentially, for him to give evidence. So it was explosive really at the time and uh, as I say not just in racing but across sports you know I've had a lot of sports lawyers saying to me god I think twice now about what panels I join and that kind of thing because I think sports law can sometimes become quite um, its own little world and I think Jim Best was sort of rather shining a light on it for the you know for the for perhaps on for the first time in a while um, on the way that sort of things can happen when when things well, you know when you have a microcosm um, and I think the Quinlan Review really sort of sorted it out, to be honest with you, so far as I can tell. Harry, um, we've kept this till last, and we want to keep it fairly sort of vague, I suppose, for you know reasons of your job and everything. But problem gambling, massive, in the context of affordability checks and all the rest you know yeah. everything's going on at the moment um i know you want to talk about this a bit but just to kick things off the you say there have been some cases where bookmakers behave very badly when a vulnerable person 
when a genuine problem has been concerned. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've got to be careful about that. For, for I can't really talk about anything I've been directly involved in, but we all know it from the newspapers that there, there are there are the exception, I think. Um, uh, but there are, of course, there are uh, uh, instances where um, uh, they've treated problem gamblers very badly and the victims of problem gamblers, so people who've had money stolen from them by family members and that sort of thing. There's not much in the way of um, sympathy for those people. But I think it all does stem from a case that a lot of people will have heard of called um, Calvert and William Hill. And you may remember the Greyhound trainer, Graham Calvert um, Jr. Uh, and this was a case where he bet in vast quantities, absolute vast quantities. Uh, largely on greyhound racing and he was restricted from greyhound racing so he moved on to other things. He had a, I think the judgment records, a £260,000 debt on the USA and the Ryder Cup which lost. Um, and why that was interesting was that he had tried to self, this was in the very early days of, 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 of the gambling uh, act, he tried to self-exclude using the William Hill internal procedures. And as a result of administrative errors, genuine, genuine administrative errors, he had not been excluded. He was able to continue to bet uh, and he continued to lose vast sums of money and eventually he just said, right, you know, this is your fault that I've lost all this money because I did ask to stop. I told you I was out of control. And he went to the High Court and he said that the, this was the first time that the courts had to look at whether bookmakers owed a duty of care to potential problem gamblers. And they said that they did, but only in a very narrow sense, which was that once a punter has said, I've got a problem, I want to be excluded, there is a duty of care to, to take reasonable steps to honour that request. Um, they, the court said there wasn't a general duty of care to identify and just say that if you're a problem, you know, identify problem gamblers and not take their money. They said that was too close to asking them to become psychologists, basically. And um, so there was a duty of care and William Hill was in breach that duty of care in that case. Um, so, so far, so good for Mr. Uh, Calvert. But um, the court went on to find that William Hill didn't have to pay him anything back uh, because he was such a pathological gambler that he would have lost that money somewhere else. So, in other words, causation hadn't been established, that the, the, um, the negligence hadn't caused the loss. Uh, now, Anyone who has tried, and I don't do many problem gambling cases, to be honest with you, but um, I've done a, a couple, um, and I'm sure that anyone who's tried legalistically to do it uh, has been met with a letter from the, from the in-house lawyers or the external lawyers or the bookmaker saying, no, 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 Calvert and William Hill, your client would have lost this money somewhere else. Anyway, and I think that that, that judgment was, was approved by the Court of Appeal, so it's quite powerful law. Um, but I think it might be decided differently today because of the implications of that, which is, in many ways, the more problematic the gambler is, the more of an inducement there is for the bookmaker to take their bets, because it's easy to argue that a really bad gambler would have lost that money somewhere else anyway. And so, in my view, I think it might have contributed to a sort of race to the bottom, really, and uh, of bookmakers really looking for um, people who, I, I don't think they would have admitted to themselves very often that these people have got problems. I just think they probably turned a blind eye to some strange behaviour. Um, 
and I think that, you know, frankly, all the stuff about VIP accounts and taking people to the FA Cup final and, you know, Europa League final and things like that, that all sort of fell under that, really. I, I always thought that was a strange um, approach to business development. I also thought it was quite strange that people did it because you don't get asked to the, you know, Champions League final because you're a brilliant punter by a bookmaker. It's because you've been identified as, you know, something of a mug, basically, and quite a big mug if you're being taken to the Champions League final. So... Um, I think a lot of that does come back down to that judgment in Calvert-William Hill. And the problem was that I think that regulation was supposed to step in there um, and deal with what the courts wouldn't deal with um, and, and had mixed results. I want, I want to chip in here. Yeah. Something that you've said right. that I want to pick up on that you don't know I'm going to say. Okay. Now, when you've, you've said that the courts have agreed that that person would have, they're such a compulsive gambler, they would have lost mm. some money somewhere else. We've all seen cases where somebody's stolen mm. from their firm mm. and they're using that as a defence because they gambled it. Mm. Now, would that not be the same that if they're a thief, they would have spent the money on something else had they not gambled it? Yeah, I, well, well, that was an argument that was raised, which is that, that, that I, it, this is very complicated, that the Graham, that the Graham Calvert case. There are all sorts of things that come out of it, including that, that there was a failure by Calvert to plead something called loss of opportunity which is, well, I might not have kept the money, but you should put a value on the opportunity I had to have kept the money. So I might have only been a 10% opportunity, in which case I should have had 10% of my winnings. There was an, another point, which is, well, uh, would, you know, he could have, instead of losing £100,000, he could have thrown, you know, spent £100,000 on a meal. Um, is that, you know, can that be treated the same as, oh, well, he would have lost it anyway? It's, it, it, it is a strange judgment for the, for, for, for the reasons that you identify. And it's not nearly as clear-cut as, as bookmakers in particular would like it to be because um, the judge makes it clear that there is behaviour that would be so extreme that bookmakers just simply shouldn't touch the bets. And also the other point is that a lot of bookmakers, a lot of problem gamblers aren't so bad that they will just gamble away everything. I mean, they actually made an explicit finding in that case that... Calvert would have faced, I think it's social and financial ruin is the way they put it, because he was just so addicted. Um, but imagine a scenario, for example, where someone might not have bet but for the inducements of bookmakers, you know, come to Wimbledon, have a bet, you know, that kind of thing. I think that would be probably rather different. Um, but it's certainly the case that Calvert remains um, a problem for problem gamblers. Okay, now I want to draw you into the, uh, the Gambling Commission. Mm -hmm. um, You've got a few opinions about. Well, I mean, it's it's you know it's a young regulatory body, um, but it's not, in my view, not helped itself in its general approach. It's been uh, distant. I think that it's uh, uh, it it's not proactive. It's very reactive. It didn't see a lot of the problems coming, which were pretty obvious down the road. Um, it's very defensive. I remember trying to get off them once, just an old copy of the LCCP, because I wanted to bring a claim under the basis of one that was two years old. What was that? So that's the Licence Conditions and Codes of Practice, um, which govern what the uh, what, what, what bookmakers must do in, their, in, their, you know, in order to maintain their licence. And the Gambling Commission's response was, please make a subject access request under the Data Protection Act in order to get basically just their, their, their old rules. Um, a totally inappropriate thing for a subject access request, but it just gives you an idea of how defensive they were. That the, the, I think anyone who's dealt with the Gambling Commission has come across sort of two, two responses. One is, oh, we're really interested in this, and if you ever get to court, do let us know how it goes, because 
which is quite an extraordinary response. And the other one is sort of, who told you we're the Gambling Commission? Who gave you this number? You know, um, and uh, uh, those seem to be the two extremes. Now, I've not dealt with them in a couple of years, and perhaps things have changed dramatically, so I, I have, to, uh, have to caveat that. But um, I think that one of the problems with the whole idea of modernising the industry, increasing regulation is, well, we've built quite a lot of regulation into gambling already, and it's not worked very well. So is the answer really, you know, a, a gambling ombudsman, for example? You're just increasing the number of people working in, the, in regulation. But until you get the regulation right, I'm not sure there's, you know, that's necessarily the answer. And affordability checks aren't the answer either? Well, affordability checks just increase the regulatory um, role of bookmakers in an industry where they have an interest in not releasing money to their customers. You know, when you give money to... Uh, a, a solicitor to buy a house, give them £200,000, their aim is to get you through the money laundering checks and get you your house, get their fees, everyone's happy. You give it to an accountant, it's to do your accounts. If you give it to me, it's to litigate. If you give £200,000 to a bookmaker, their aim is to, to, to keep it. Um, and so giving them the regulatory obligation to then uh, decide whether you're entitled to it to an extent is a little bit like marking your own homework. Um, and I'm not sure, really, that that element of self-regulation works terribly well in gambling. And I think the idea of now increasing that into the, to the extent where you know, there are, they're going to be looking through people's... Well, we don't really know what it's going to be, but there's a suggestion that they'll be looking through people's savings accounts, their income. You know, oh, you went to the cinema too many times last week, you can't have a bet, that kind of thing. I just think that in increasing the role of bookmakers in regulation when they haven't done a brilliant job of it so far doesn't strike me as the answer. And that's before you get into what an extraordinarily um, radical proposal it is to look at people's bank statements before deciding whether they can buy a product. You know, they don't do it in alcohol, they don't do it in tobacco. Um, and, the, and the other thing is, they're not actually talking about people's gambling problems here, they're just talking about affordability. So they slightly fudge that, I, I think, the, the proponents of this, which is that they say, well, affordability is linked to harmful gambling. Well, but they're not the same thing, you know. Uh, um, and so I don't think affordability checks are, 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 are the answer, but we'll see. Now, coming to the end of this now, you've, do you choose not to defend these bookmakers or is it just a remake? <laughs> I work for bookmakers. Um, uh, I don't work for them in these cases. I've never been instructed in one. But, um, you, you know, I was talking to you earlier about we've been at Gardner Leader. We've been setting up a new online bookmaker uh, in recent weeks. It's just launched before uh, for Cheltenham. Um, so I don't, I, 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 and I work closely with a lot of people who own interest in bookmakers and uh, people who work for bookmakers. Um, and I'm not a bookie basher by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but when it comes to litigation, I tend to be instructed by um, the punter. Okay, now, is it... I'm just going to chuck this one out. You know, <laughs> people watching the, watching the crime series is on, yeah. the, on the telly will often wonder how these duty solicitor can defend these scumbags that have done a, yeah. a heinous crime. I mean, you know... <laughs> yeah, I don't do that, Simon, I promise. <laughs> no, but, but if you, if, if, just for hypothetically, if you were given a bookmaker, would you think, hang on a minute, you should be paying this fellow? Would, would you... No, no, because it's, it not your, it's not your job, you know. Your job is, your, your job is to advise and, and represent. So um, if a bookmaker came to me, I would, if I thought they would lose in court, I would say, I think you should pay out or pay out some of it. Um, and if I didn't, then I'd advise them, to, and then they make the decision about how they want to do it. I mean, 
obviously everyone has um, a line that they won't uh, cross in terms of, you know, and there are professional obligations as well about not misleading. Um, and but as long as you're in line with your professional obligations, um, then I'd have no issue in acting for bookmakers either, because you know that that the. Um, they're two sides of the same coin. Without you know, it, it, the way to look at it is an, is, is an industry rather than as I, I don't tend to look at it as bookmakers on one side and, and gamblers on the other. Um, but it is true to say. I mean, I, you know, I, as I say, I've act, I've advised quite a lot of bookmakers. Not not in um, I haven't got caught with it, but I, I help bookmakers with things uh, and have no objection to doing so. Okay, final question then. In your experience so far, personally. Mm. Who have been the most honourable, the punters or the bookmakers? <laughs> well, it's a war, isn't it? Um, I think all's fair in love and war to an extent. But I think actually, I'm going to give you some politicians' answer to this. I think that really the, um, the story of regulated bookmaking since the, the Gambling Act has actually probably been a failure of regulation more than anything. I think if it was properly regulated, we wouldn't be worrying about who was more honourable because it would work better. Um, and I know bookmakers get very frustrated by the regulation as well. It's not just the punters. Uh, and it is a young regulator. I think one of the things that was an issue early on were who it was employing from day one, whether they, were, whether they had the nous, um, or whether they were just the type of people that sort of cruise from one uh, of these type of bodies to another. Um, and I think that's something that needs to be re-looked into when, when, when it, you know, if there is going to be this big bang where it's reset is making sure that there are people who really understand the nitty-gritty of the way the industry works and aren't endlessly watching and trying to learn after the event, which is the impression I've always had with the Gambling Commission. Okay, this is the definite final question. Okay. We try and keep these with a long shelf life. So we'll okay. call it in 2023. Right. In 2033, is this all sorted itself out? In 2033, something's changed. Something dramatic will have changed in the next 10 years because I don't see how it carries on like... Uh, it does, but of course we've got this white paper, which might be might be the beginning of that. Um, I think that at some point, someone will do a proper review into gambling, and I think at that point, um, an awful lot of things will be will will, will come out of the, the cupboard and be swept up. But I, I suspect we're looking at a very different regulatory climate in ten years' time. I, whether that's a good thing or not, it's probably a question for the government and the gambling commission, really. Okay, so anybody watching this in 2033, hopefully they're giving you the thumbs up, Harry. Yeah. And, well, um, well anyway, thank hopefully you very much. Hopefully they instruct me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you very much for doing this Not interview. Not at all. Harry thanks very much, Simon. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much. Cheers.